The word of the Lord from the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, reading chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Uh, simply uh, two classes of men in the world in which we live. Uh, some believe and some don't. Uh, of course, it's quite simplistic, but it is uh, clarity of the scriptures. Two courses of life. Some believe and some don't. But it is, of course, more than that because uh, in either uh, path, uh, there is a great transformation that occurs. Uh, when you do not believe in Christ, uh, you are engaging great transformative power. Uh, likewise, when you do come to the Savior and believe and hope in Him and Him alone, great transformation occurs. We begin this morning with, uh, with those who do not believe uh, because uh, the narrative account here is uh, uh, men who refuse to believe in the resurrection and of course, the human condition absent uh, the resurrection is an act of sheer desperation to advance unbelief. Uh, some of the soldiers report to the chief priests uh, all that had happened. Uh, the exact content of uh, the report is uh, unknown to us. Uh, I suspect some of them were eyewitnesses of the angelic presence. Uh, did they look into the tomb and see that it was empty? Did they ponder these great things of what had happened? Uh, again, if you look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 2 to 4, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. You know, perhaps there was some of those men in the company that now report to the chief priest. I don't know fully, but uh, my speculation. Regardless, they were given a considerable sum of money to falsify their report. Uh, they fabricate that they fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. Uh, in other words, they failed to do their duty as professional soldiers. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, for those of you who have uh, been in the military, you can relate to this, and those of you who cannot uh, invite your uh, playing with my words, uh, when you're in the military and you're on guard duty, bad things happen to you when you fall asleep on guard duty. Uh, it is absolutely incredible for these professional soldiers to admit to Pilate, the Roman governor, that they failed in their duty. Bad things happen to soldiers when they fail to do their duty. And therefore, it makes uh, the fabrication of uh, their actions to be 
incredulous. But it is the extent to which men will go uh, to advance denial. Uh, I mean, this is highly unlikely uh, given the events. I mean, uh, the disciples came. Uh, men, men make noise. Uh, all of them were sound asleep. Again, that's quite incredible to me, but nonetheless, it's an expression of the fallenness of man to advance that which is a, a radical lie, that they fell asleep. Now, for the lawyers of the Sanhedrin, bribery was not permitted in Old Testament law, but they, they throw themselves into advancing what is a lie uh, to bribe the soldiers, knowing full well that bribery was... Uh, uh, not a proper course of action from Old Testament law, uh, to say nothing of bearing false witness. Of course, there's no thought to the reality, only a scheme to advance uh, denial, and that is something of a description of all who walk the path of unbelief. They advance continually a scheme to advance uh, their own denial of what is uh, self-evident, namely the resurrected Christ. The propagation of the theory of grave robbers is another act of desperation. I mean, again, we know from the accounts of the Gospels that the disciples were in disrepair and chaos. Uh, we know that something happens, uh, uh, a miracle, in fact, that will utterly revolutionize their lives. And furthermore, many of them will go on to die for the faith uh, and it's incredulous to believe that men would die for a known lie. Uh, lots of men die for lies. We do that all the time. But for a known lie is an entirely different matter. I mean, again, uh, professional soldiers all sound asleep. And men come and remove a large stone and all of the efforts that it would take to engage in that, it's incredible. But again, unbelief is incredible. But the insanity of unbelief is an elementary fact of creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God created man in his own image. And as such, the glory of God is stamped on the soul of everyone who's ever been born. And everywhere man goes, he's confronted with the reality of the glory of God. He cannot escape it. Illustration of this, Psalter, Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and the firmament is declaring the works of His hand. Theological commentary on the majesty of God's glory in creation, including the soul of man, uh, is given to us by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Romans in the first chapter. Paul says, for even, uh, pardon me, verse 18, Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Every man knows that God has created them because God makes it known to them. It's what they do with it that's the issue. And what do they do with that knowledge? Verses 21 to 23, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of incorruptible man and of the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The phrase that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the description of men in terms of continuous action, that every unbeliever knows there's a God, it's stamped upon his souls, he sees it everywhere of every waking day of his life and the glory of God in the creation, but he suppresses it. It's as if he's holding it back with all the power that he can muster. In fact, the force of the description is he's continually suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That men outside of Christ are perpetually and without cessation holding back what is self-evident to them. And the extremes to which they go is also evidence of a life of perpetual denial. It's like the soldiers fabricating a lie, receiving a bride, propagate what they know to be false. They live their entire lives in a state of denial. That is a man that has walked down the path of unbelief in light of the greatest event of all time, the resurrection of the God-man Jesus Christ. About 20 or 30 years ago, a guy writes a book called The Swoon Theory. Jesus on the cross, the incredible punishment through the trial, uh, the agony, he only uh, falls into a momentary state of unconsciousness. Uh, put in the tomb, he's uh, awakened by the cool air of the tomb and uh, wakes up and uh, uh, rolls away the massive stone and steals out, and, uh, and therefore the tomb is empty. The swoon theory. I mean, I might acknowledge you, it takes more faith to believe in that than the faith in the resurrected Christ. I mean, Christ was, was uh, acknowledged by professional executioners to be dead. That's why they didn't break his legs. He was stabbed in the side, as you know. Incredible loss of blood. Really? He swoons upon the cross. Uh, but that's the uh, estate of mankind that uh, does not believe in the resurrection, refuses to believe in that which is self-evident, that God is their creator and that his glory is stamped upon their souls. And the extent that they will go to that uh, denial is, of course, uh, quite incredible, but it is the folly of unbelief. By the way, there's another book written, uh, Who Moved the Stone? God was a skeptic, couldn't believe <laughs> the resurrection of God? Really? So he goes to study all of the historical accounts and in the study becomes convinced that it's a historical fact. And he writes a book, Who Moved the Stone? 
skeptic turned believer. Different paths, uh, different executions of what men uh, believe or do not believe. John gives us another description of uh, the desperation of man. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is witness that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. It's the point of unbelief. They love darkness rather than loving the light that God has sent into the world. It's very interesting, the, the verb uh, love. Uh, they love the darkness. It's a, it's a word of God-loving sinners. Uh, that God loves all men without distinction. The love of God, the majesty of the love of God in coming to redeem sinners. That's the verb used of men, their love of darkness. By the way, how's that working out for the world? If you're like me and you read the daily newspaper, not too well, but that's the point of human history. Men love the darkness rather than the light. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Great prophet Jeremiah has a description of uh, this, uh, the extent that men will go to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In this case, it's written of, uh, of the Old Testament people of God, Jeremiah chapter 2, and verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me? that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. That they walked after vanity. Vanity is uh, the reality of something that is of no account whatsoever. It means nothing. Uh, they walked after nothingness and they became exactly the object of their pursuits. Pursuing emptiness, they became empty. Pursuing vanity and lies, they became full of vanity and lies. Another beautiful description of the 13th verse of the same chapter. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. You say, well, that's insanity. No, that's the reality of unbelief. I mean, I remind you that these words are written before the great Roman aqueducts before modern-day plumbing. The possession of water, the very essence of life, was not as easy, accessible as you and I have it today. And they had it, but they rejected it. To go hew a cistern that could not hold water, uh, had a crack in it, and all the water leaks out. But that's what they give them lo their lives to, a broken cistern that holds no life. The God is life, and men loved death more than they loved the life of God. It's the way of desperate men who, in an act of terrifying insanity, are in denial of the historic fact of the resurrection. Again, I'm not unmindful that uh, I cannot prove to you uh, what happened at the resurrection. Those are theological truths that can only be grasped through uh, the witness of Scripture. Uh, but just simply the way of man. Uh, 
here, obviously, we're confronted over again with uh, eyewitnesses of the event, of men whose lives are utterly changed and transformed. Uh, something greater happened than Jesus swooned upon the cross, only to awaken in the cool air of a tomb. But that's the way of unbelief. Uh, So that's the, the human condition absent uh, the resurrection, love of death, uh, love of darkness, love of folly. Uh, the other uh, act that is parallel, of course, and totally opposite and antithetical is uh, men who believe. And as well, when men believe, there is a great transformative event that occurs so much so that a life is totally changed. In the case of unbelief, there's radical change. In the case of belief, there's radical change. In both cases, the effect is radical. And when God confronts men with the resurrection and the power of his spirit, the outcome, of course, is transformational. Now, by the way, uh, I mean, I'm not unmindful that uh, it's a great act of the grace of God to simply give you a couple of verses uh, 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we, we all know that uh, the apostolic uh, company was in utter disbelief and denial as to what had occurred. And it takes a miracle, the miracle of belief, to change their lives. Luke chapter 24, 31st verse. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. not just the resurrection. It's God has to open our eyes, which is what he does. Great act of salvation. He opens the eyes of men who are incredulous as to what has happened. Verse 45, same chapter. Then he opened their mind to understand the scripture. How do we know anything about God? He reveals himself both externally in his scripture, but internally in the power of his spirit. It's like our eyes were scaled over and God removes the scales and the power. Such a man, of course, as you know, was the great enemy of the faith, Saul. He was present, for example, the stoning of Stephen. Very inauspicious beginning to his persecution of the church. Three occasions in the book of Acts, he gives the witness to the encounter he had with the resurrected Christ. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. Let's just turn to one of those, the 22nd chapter of the book of Acts. And here's a man who was the avowed enemy of the church. And now he becomes not just a friend, but a radical prosecutor of the gospel in light of his encounter with the resurrected Christ. I would submit to you that change is radical when Paul is made a believer. Acts 22, and verses 6 to 10. Came about that I was on my way approaching Damascus. About noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. The resurrected Christ encounters Saul and turns him in to one of the greatest witnesses of the history of the church and the history of all civilizations. Paul uh, certainly uh, is first and foremost. Radical change. What caused it? The resurrected Christ encounters him and changes him. And unbelief turns into belief. And he repairs to this event three times the history of the early Christian church, the book of Acts. In a miraculous moment, the enemy becomes a friend of the gospel and the resurrection is the compelling force. And we know this uh, from his theological commentary in Philippians chapter 3. I encourage you to turn in the New Testament to the third chapter the epistle to the church at Philippi. I mean, what happened to Paul in light of the resurrection of Christ? We know what happens to the Sanhedrin, to uh, the soldiers. Uh, they refuse to believe and they give their lives to an entire uh, path of denial and suppression of the truth. Uh, here's a man who doesn't believe. He encounters the resurrection. He comes to believe. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, and that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's uh, theological description of what happened to him on the road to Damascus, encountering the resurrected Savior, Christ, Paul begins in his account in Philippians 3 by ransacking his trophy case of all of his attainments under Judaism. There was a man who was a brilliant lawyer, a scholar. Uh, he had achieved virtually everything, and he ransacks and tears down his trophy case, throws it all away, counts them but rubbish. Derogatory word which would render him in Old Testament law unclean. He cared nothing for his trophies in life. Gives them all away and sees them for what they are in light of the surpassing value of the knowledge of the resurrected Savior. He has learned of someone greater and his acknowledgement of the great doctrine of justification by faith is decisive as to his newfound life. And listen again to the words, not having a righteousness of my own, but righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. All of human religion is pursuing the righteousness of a man. 
that is reckoned as nothing before God. Because God is not impressed with the righteousness of men. Very fond in terms of my own condemnation of the words of the great prophet Isaiah, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. A God of infinite perfection is not impressed by the tininess of our fallen works as if we could gain his attention. All of religion trying to do right before God when God accepts none of it. There's a greater force at play, the works of God on our behalf to affect our justification. Not having a righteousness of my own, but righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We believe in God, and at that moment there's imputed to us the righteousness of his Son, the resurrected Christ, and the power of his resurrection. And Paul, having experienced the historic event of the resurrection, tries to apprehend all of the benefits that accrue to belief on the basis of faith. And while, of course, this is a one-time event, that is not all that it is. I've suggested to you that men believe and there's radical transformation. And so Paul continues that I may know him and the power of his res resurrection in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the one and all the power inherent in that one sets the great apostle on a determined pursuit of being conformed to the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. The greatest of the persons of the one possesses the lesser to go all out, even if it includes death, because in light of the resurrection of Christ, the death of a man no longer means anything to the Apostle Paul. Because he knows of the power of the resurrection that should he die, he will yet live again. Because that's what the resurrection means to Paul and should mean to each of us that we can spend our lives in the entirety of his service. And even if we die in that service, because we know him, we will yet live again and that we can never, ever die throughout all eternity. On two occasions in this short paragraph, Paul describes himself in determined pursuit. Verse 12, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. He's pursuing what owns him. Verse 14, I press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is as if he is in a race to achieve the greatest of all prizes, namely conformity to the resurrected Savior. And he concludes by saying, I press on towards the goal of that upward call of God in Christ Jesus, my Savior. The resurrection seized Paul on the road to Damascus, and he now wants the fullness of all that it means in the resurrection to glory at the end of the age. The thought owns him and presses him onward and upward. The transformative power of the resurrected Christ sets that in motion. The fullness of the glory that seized him is his goal. It owns him, but it's not enough for Paul. He wants it all. So he gives his life in the fullness of service in light of what apprehended him on the road to Damascus. 
And just as it will not let go of Him, He will not let go of it. The sheer sanity and clarity of the resurrection. You might be saying, well, that's Paul. No, that's normative Christian living. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 15, live for as any as are perfect or mature have this attitude. That's normative Christian living. To understand what the resurrection means and understanding it to give your life in total pursuit of the majesty of the resurrected Savior in service. You sell everything out because nothing is worth anything in light of him who has conquered death on our behalf. And whatever your pursuit in life, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, it's all done for the glory of him who gave his all that we might achieve the fullness of resurrected glory. If you fully understand the resurrection of Christ as Paul did and as we should, because God has given us eyes to see, regardless of your vocation, it's in service to the Savior, done for His glory, to advance His cause, His calling. Nothing else is worth anything given who He is and what He has done for us. Normative Christian living, Philippians 3 and verse 15, that radical change is the norm. Again, radical change embraced the professional soldiers who advanced the lie that they fell asleep, were bribed uh, to advance a lie, a life of determined pursuit of denying what itself evidently stamped upon their souls. The path of unbelief. The Apostle Paul, the path of belief radical change because of the resurrection of the glories of the Son of God. Another illustration of uh, a measure of this is John chapter 11. Text that I'm sure all of you are very familiar. Uh, Jesus goes to uh, confront death. the effects of the fall on his dear friend Lazarus hold him in incensed and controlled anger. So he goes to rescue. I mean, I might extrapolate from that that that's exactly what he did with you. His anger at the effects of the fall upon your life and soul. He... He goes to the cross to rescue you forever. Uh, Martha, of course, as you know, complains, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, Jesus says to her, your your brother shall rise again. And then that compelling statement, I am the resurrection and the life that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The resurrection, belief, and transformational change. He goes to the tomb and commands Lazarus to come forth. The text reads, John eleven forty four: he who had died came forth. Interesting, two things happen as a result of that event. Precisely my point, the path of belief 
in the path of unbelief. Verse 45, John 11, and many believed. How could you not believe? Well, verse 53, John 11. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Two paths, two choices, two acts of utter transformation. Radical response, radical change. Belief and unbelief. One is a path of radical desperation, denial. The other is belief and radical transformation. It's what the text, I think, clearly states. The point of John 11 for Martha is very, very personal, so let me make it personal for you. John chapter 11 and verse 26. Jesus... Uh, says to her, do you believe this? It's a timeless question. It's a question that cascades throughout all of history. The truth of the resurrection. But do you believe it? And again, I'm fully aware of the fact that only God can remove the scales from your eyes as he did Paul, Lazarus, and to all who come to faith. But if you do not believe this, then you must flee to him because only he can give you eyes to see and a heart to know. In the ultimate reality, only he can explain the truth to you so that you can apprehend it. Only he can cause you and give you the great gift of faith, but... It is the reminder that if you cannot answer that question, then you ought to flee to him as quickly as you can flee. Otherwise, your life will be a long, fruitless, continual path of utter denial and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and it will not turn out well for your soul. Do you believe this? It's the timeless question. I will tell you that the entire premise of the existence of the church of Jesus Christ is the truth that Christ conquered death, defeated it, left the grave, left his grave clothes, and went to gather his people. And so, as time marches on, is continuing to gather them until he will one day come and we will behold his everlasting glory in but a moment. The Apostle Paul says, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed into the radical glory of the resurrected Savior. But again, the testimony of Scripture ought to be preceded by the question, do you believe this? And may God be gracious to you to set you in determined pursuit to believe the one who gave his life a ransom for the many to set in motion their radical change. For those of you who have believed, this is the most compelling reason for joy and hope that there ever is. That death in all of its ugliness, in all of its meanness, 
and all of its seemingly lack of any meaning whatsoever will never hold us. In all of the great philosophical pursuits of life, it is what can there be meaning to life in light of death, which is nothingness, but for us it is not nothingness. It is the pursuit of him who gave his life that we might live forever. And the point ought to be joy, everlasting, and fullness of hope. The world has given itself to one long, determined pursuit of hopelessness. You and I are otherwise. The greatest hope in all the world. And may God bless you in light of the testimony of the great Apostle Paul that you would chase and pursue the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, until the day that he comes for you and the day that he comes for his church to grant it a glory that I have not seen or ear could ever, ever imagine what it must mean to be totally transformed and changed and that we achieve the greatest estate of all of life, the fullness of conformity to the Savior, given a life of service to him in light of the fact that he came to serve us. May God bless us in that pursuit from this day and for every day evermore until he comes.